scripture tonight is from Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The word of the Lord. My fraternity brothers uh, played a drinking game in college that I did not participate in. I played a more dangerous game. It was called judging my brother's spiritual journey. Ever played it? I was one of the most devoted leaders of an outstanding campus ministry. Several of us out-fasted, out-evangelized, out-studied, and out-prayed everybody else. And most other members of the movement did not live up to our high standards. And at the end of the week, after Bible studies and evangelistic appointments... We'd gather in a dorm room for pizza and Cokes, and eventually we'd start talking about someone maybe who would pull back their involvement. Where's Brian? Why isn't Brian going for it anymore? Or if the attendance at our worship night was low, we might say, why aren't people just more committed? If someone left our movement for another campus ministry, we might worry aloud that that ministry didn't care as much about evangelism as we did. And when I look back, I can't blame that on my leaders. They were godly, humble people. I lay the blame squarely on a sin I have struggled with my entire life. I judge other people's spiritual journeys. And I don't think I'm alone in this. Every Christian community I've ever been a part of has struggled with judgment And judgment produces shame. One of the things that's been enjoyable about this series is a number of you are having some correspondence with me about your own experience with this. And 
Uh, I'm going to share a little bit with their permission tonight. One young woman wrote me after we'd spent an hour talking about shame. She said, my strong faith and above reproach behavior granted me favor with teachers and my youth pastor. In college, ministry consumed my life. Everything revolved around making sure that I was being a, quote, radical world changer, unquote, for God. The summer before my senior year, I began to see how many of my choices were rooted in shame. And I began to experience freedom from shame that summer and make choices not rooted in shame. When I returned to campus in the fall, my best friend noted that she had heard that I had worn a bikini over the summer and had spent time with a guy outside of our campus ministry. She accused me of not loving God anymore. Eventually, I was pushed out of that ministry. I felt ashamed of myself. My anxiety was at an all-time high. Shame was making me sick and insane. Judging communities are shaming communities, and judging has no place in the beloved community. Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not that you not be judged. When we look at Romans 14, uh, we see a, a, a church, or probably a network of house churches, that were judging each other. And you get a feel for what was happening in the first verses. He says, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. One person believes he made anything. The weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So the weak in faith are Jewish Christians who believed that they still needed to keep some of the old covenant laws, like Sabbath keeping on Saturday and abstaining from certain foods. The Gentile Christians felt that they did not have to do that anymore. And the two groups had broken into camps. They were judging each other, and Paul says despising each other. It's a strong word that means to treat with utter contempt, to act as if something has no value at all. This happens in our churches too. And those things from the 2,000 years ago sound pretty irrelevant today, but let's just think for a minute on some of the ways that we judge each other. Politics. How could he vote for? School choices. How can she send her child to a public school? Won't they lose their faith? Why would anybody homeschool their kids? Isn't that just withdrawing from society? Private schools are elitist. How would you do that? Lifestyle. Did you hear where they went for vacation? Callings. Mystics don't think activists pray enough. Activists think mystics just stare at their navel. Clothing. I never spend that much on a sweater. That dress is a little too revealing. And then there are the subtle, almost imperceptible ways that we judge each other with a tone of voice or an upturned eye, an unreturned text, an invitation withdrawn or not given to a birthday party. Another friend wrote me this week, during my sophomore year of high school, families from my church left to start a home church exploring the charismatic gifts. My friends would call me and they'd tell me about the incredible miracles they were experiencing. They just wanted me to know God that way. I think they were genuine, but I often left those conversations feeling less than. And I began an unhealthy pattern of trying to prove my faith to my friends and to myself. I became highly critical of myself. 
I no longer trusted my own quiet prayers. I constantly felt like I wasn't enough. And I still carry pieces of that shame today that there's a divide between me and God that good Christians don't experience. So judging shames us. Paul says that instead of shaming, we should welcome the person whose journey is different than ours. It's a Greek word that Luke uses to describe the people of Malta welcoming Paul after a shipwreck. Uh, Jesus, or John, uses it to describe Jesus welcoming us into heaven. It's, it's hospitality. So in, instead of doing what human beings naturally do, having the meat eaters and the non-meat eaters go into different small groups and then judge each other, we are supposed to be hospitable towards a brother or sister whose spiritual journey looks different than ours. And Paul gives three reasons in this passage for why we shouldn't judge one another. The first one, my brother is accountable to God and not to me. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul's saying, why, why are you judging your brother You are not his master. You are not his judge. God is. This is the first reason why we don't have the right to judge each other, is that you are not accountable to me. You are accountable to him. We have no authority to judge one another. We are not the judge. Now, when you look at this subject, there's a couple of questions that come up, and and I I suspect one of them is that's coming up for some of you is, well, but doesn't the Bible say that we should hold one another accountable? And and I want to talk about that for a moment um, because the Bible does say that we should help each other grow in Christ in, in, in many different ways, encouragement being one of them. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So Paul, who wrote that too, couldn't be saying, hey, never get into anybody's stuff. Uh, everybody's individual, never talk to anybody about anything in their life. He couldn't be saying that. But I also want to suggest that a lot of shaming has gone on in the name of holding one another accountable. And so I'm going to suggest a few questions we might ask. If there's somebody in your life that you care about and you feel like, you know, I'm worried about this pattern in their life or this direction in their life, and I'm wondering if I should talk with them about it because I love them and I'm concerned. Here's a couple of questions you might ask yourself before you go. One, has my friend invited me to speak into his life? Do we have the quality of friendship to have this conversation, and have I earned the right to have it? Two, is it possible that my friend is simply following God in a different way than I am and not heading down a dangerous path? Three, am I approaching my friend with a vision for who God is making her to be In other words, am I trusting that God is already at work in her life? Four, am I making assumptions about my friend's behavior that are not formed from patient listening? Five, do I feel responsible for saving my friend 
Am I taking responsibility for her choices? And six, is the relationship reciprocal? Am I open to my sister speaking into my life? And last, who is this really about? Do I want to hold my friend accountable because I'm truly concerned for her? Or do I just need to relieve my own anxiety over her choices? So, we're, we're talking tonight about not being a shaming community. Not judging each other. It, it, it doesn't mean that we never talk to our closest intimate friends about issues we're concerned about. That's not what we're saying. But when we do, we need to be very, very careful uh, that we don't shame each other. The second reason Paul gives for not ju- judging is essentially this. He says, look, you can trust your sister's journey. I want to talk about this for a little bit because it goes against the grain. Judgment and shame are poisonous weeds that grow in the soils of mistrust and suspicion. And we are so quick to assume the motives behind another's spiritual choices are impure. Paul doesn't do that here. He knows there's sin in this church, but he believes the best. Look what he says. He says, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. In other words, the Jewish traditionalist that feels he has to practice the Sabbath on Saturday, he says, you know, that guy's doing it in honor of the Lord. The Gentile who feels free to eat pork, they're doing it in honor of the Lord. He's believing the best. And he, he, he's saying every Christian, because they're a Christian, has uh, their deepest desire is this. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. I think what he's saying is assume that first about your brother or sister in Christ. Assume that they're a Christian too, that God lives in them, and that they are trying to follow God, and that God is at work in their life, and you can honor that journey. Start there. If he were writing it today, he might say, the career mother and the stay-at-home mother are both using their gifts to honor the Lord. The Democrat and the Republican are voting in ways they think honor the Lord. The mystic and the activist are both honoring the Lord. Each one is trying to live for the Lord. This has been a very convicting text. Um, for me this week. It's really been troubling, and I'm just finding I judge everybody all the time. Uh, Friday morning, I'm in the swimming pool. It's 5.30 in the morning, and we start right at 5.30, and this guy who I love gets there at 5.30, and he waits 10 minutes before he gets into the pool. That's disgusting. I mean, can you imagine showing up at the pool and waiting 10 minutes? And I am a guy who starts when the coach says start. And so I swim 100 yards. I look up. He's still there. I swim 100 yards. I look up. He's still there playing with his cap. And I am getting angry and angry and thinking, what is this guy doing? It's 542 and he's not in the pool yet. And then it occurred to me, whose problem is this? (laughs) Why do you even care about whether or not he's in the pool? It's not your problem. I do it on more serious things here, and I've been trying to, I've had a real problem with judgment a couple years ago, and I'm just going to say it, and we'll clean it up later. (laughs) I have really struggled 
when you don't come to church. <laughs> a little nervous laughter there. I, um, there was a period. Yeah, I know. Now, Alfred, you need to let me preach here, brother. You got to let me got to let me get through this. We've got a Super Bowl coming up at 630. So, so a few years ago, I really became frustrated that a lot of folks weren't coming to church that much. And it was turning into anger. And, and I was getting I was getting upset and, and cynical. And um, I think it was affecting my preaching. It was affecting my relating. And I started to sit down with folks. And some of you were the victims of this conversation. And I said, well, well why don't you come to church? <laughs> you know, what? What's going on here? Sometimes the answers bothered me. Sometimes I found a robust faith that was working itself out in ways that didn't necessarily connect as much to the corporate gathering of worship. And I've got to admit, this approach to faith puzzles me. I believe deeply in the corporate gathering of the people of God. I, it slips out passive-aggressively in about every third sermon illustration. Um, <laughs> But I felt the Lord say to me, what would happen if you honored their journey? What would happen if you just started trusting that God is at work in their life? And uh, that's his problem. And I I, I tell you, I mean, I still want you to come to church. Um, This has really put me into a brand new place as a pastor the first time in my life. And I find myself now asking the question, How can I pastor people in my church who don't come much to my church? (laughs) What does it look like today to pastor folks who aren't as engaged on a weekly basis as we were a generation ago? It's just really creating a lot of fun things to explore. And what I've been compelled to ask is, how can I just trust and support your journey you know, by the way, the average attendance in America now is uh, once every 3.5 weeks. Uh, and it's, it's dropping every year. Or, I'm not advocating that, but that seems to be where we are. One dear, dear young lady, I sat down, we we're having this great conversation, and I said, why, so why don't you come? And she looked in the eye and she said, um, you take yourself way too seriously. <laughs> that, was the, that was her response. I said, what do you mean? He says, she said, Doug, it's just not as important to me as it is to you. And I found myself thinking, ouch. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, that's, I do this for my whole life. And, uh, but the Lord said, trust her journey. Trust her journey. And we've developed a really interesting relationship <laughs> outside of church. <laughs> so I was talking about this with a friend, and, and, and uh, they shared this story with me. They said, I remember working along a friend in ministry and having the feeling that there was a growing distance between us in how we approach spiritual things. The uneasiness in me grew with each interaction. And I tried to minimize it, but I realized now that I'd begun to feel threatened. See, I felt like I was growing. I felt like I was coming to a new understanding of things. I was going in a different direction than ever before. And it felt like a matter of life and death spiritually. Now, pause there for a second. 
In my experience, the moment we are most prone to judging others is the time in our life when we are going through incredible spiritual growth. (laughs) And God is showing us something we've never seen before, and we want everybody to see it, and it's changed our life. That's when we're most prone to judging. Looking back, I wished I'd stopped right there and initiated a conversation between us. I might have been able to express my fear and been curious to see if they felt the uneasiness too. But I didn't. Ultimately, my fear led to anger and spilled out in my words. Damage, hurt, broken relationships ensued. Years have passed. And I now see more clearly that I did not honor my friend's journey. I believed I was in the right place. Anyone not walking right alongside of me needed to be enlightened. The arrogance of that causes me to shudder now. Yet I see the same tendency still present in me. When I remember that I do not know what God is up to in another's life, I can love them well. Instead of judging them, I can, by the power of the Spirit, move toward them in love, sincerely curious about their journey, their fears, and their longings. Oh, I just think that's such a beautiful vision of what a loving Christian community is like. Notice he's not saying, I just wish we'd never talked about it. I'll never talk to anybody again about anything I'm concerned or troubled or puzzled by in their life. No, he's saying, instead of judging them, I wish that I'd have been more curious and that I'd have really tried to understand why they were doing what they were doing. That's ground for a great conversation. Well, the last reason about why we shouldn't judge each other, he says in verse 10 to 12, is we're all going to be judged. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He quotes Isaiah, as I live, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. Then he says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I think what he's saying is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your home? I think the point is, if we are really working on our own junk, our own sin, if we become aware of the issues we're wrestling with, we will have less energy to judge everybody else. Focus on your own stuff. So judging communities are shaming communities. Now, I want to end... Um, by addressing the second question that comes up whenever you preach this passage and whenever you talk about being a non-shaming community. The first one is, well, aren't we supposed to hold one another accountable? The second question is, shouldn't we judge doctrinal error? Uh, Clearly, Paul is not saying, it doesn't matter what you believe, just love each other. I mean, this is, after all, the book of Romans. (laughs) There's like eight chapters explaining the doctrine of justification by faith, Romans 16, 17. Watch out for those who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. So beliefs do matter. This passage is not saying beliefs don't matter. Paul's own practice, I think, can show us a little bit about when and how we should talk about doctrinal questions. And if you're interested more in this, we preached a series on this in uh, the summer of 2014 called Consensual Orthodoxy. When pastoring, and, and, and I know this is a little, uh, a little dense, but this is really important, so hold on. When pastoring the Roman churches, 
Paul does not confront the error of the weaker brother. This is really important. In these churches, there are people who disagree theologically about important things. Sabbath keeping and food laws in the first century were the biggest issues they were wrestling with. And they disagree. Paul does not correct them. He says, welcome each other, listen to each other, and learn to live with each other. He's responsible to God. So this is a counsel to embrace theological diversity in the family of God. These are important areas where they disagree, and he says, welcome each other, extend hospitality. Now, in Galatians, he vigorously defends the gospel and warns against false teaching. What's the difference? I think the difference is, when the essence of the gospel, the core of the gospel, what we see in, expressed in the creed, when that is at issue, that is something that you go to the mat over. There are times, as churches, as Christians, when, when you do have to push back about doctrinal error, and it's when it has to do with the essence of the gospel. But there are many other times when very important matters of biblical interpretation, we listen to each other and we live and embrace our diversity. Now, good Christians living under the authority of Scripture and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit still disagree because sin has influenced our ability to read Scripture and nobody reads it perfectly. And sometimes well-meaning believers think another believer is in doctrinal error when, in fact, the other believer simply holds a legitimate alternative position. And this is something that gets frustrating to me. I'll just whine a little bit here, and then we're almost done. Um, I've been studying theology formally for, uh, since I was 20. Uh, 37 years, I've studied Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. I've read thousands of books. I find the Bible extraordinarily challenged to interpret <laughs> I find it hard to interpret, especially the further you get out from the, 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 the central gospel message. And I get so frustrated sometimes, probably judgmental too, when I'm talking with a dear brother or sister about a controversial issue and, and they say, well, the Bible says this. And I said, well, actually in the, in the history of the church, there's been a number of ways to look at this. No, 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 the Bible says this. And I say, well, have you read anybody that's kind of proposed? An, no, no, no. And it turns out they spent five minutes online looking at their favorite pastor uh, who blogged on it, and now they know the whole counsel of God. And, and brothers and sisters, think. It takes more than five minutes with your favorite radio preacher to know the whole counsel of God. It's complicated. And I feel that if, if, if you're really worked up over an issue, if you have not studied the other side well enough to defend it, you don't know your own point of view. I had a, a professor in college say, until you can defend your opponent's view better than they can, you're really not ready to say you believe in what you believe. So, as an illustration, one of the ways we can see good Christians disagree on very significant doctrinal questions is, are these books called the Three Views or the Four Views series. And they're very popular with pastors. I have tons of them. I'm just going to give you a few of their titles to illustrate this idea that good Christians can disagree on significant stuff. 
The nature of the atonement, four views. Understanding, four views on baptism. Perspectives on the doctrine of God, four views. Four views on church government, four views on hell. Divorce and marriage, four Christian views. Four views on salvation. Woman in ministry, four views. Four views on eternal security. Revelation, four views. Divine foreknowledge, four views. Understanding, four views of the Lord's Supper. Predestination and three will. Free will, four views. The meaning of the millennium, four views. War, four views. Four views on the end times. Our miraculous gifts for today, four views. God in time, four views. Show them no mercy. See four views on God and the Canaanite genocide. That's a page turner. I read it. Four views on moving beyond the Bible to theology, psychology, and Christianity. Five views. Science and Christianity. Four views. What about those who haven't heard? Three views. Three views on the rapture. How should we choose? Three views on decision making. Three views on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. The Genesis debate. Three views on the days of creation. Perspectives on Christian worship. Five views. Five views on apologetics. Church, state, and public justice. Five views. That's not all of them. <laughs> Okay, my point, the Bible's hard to interpret. You can't blog your favorite preacher and think you know the whole counsel of God, people. Think. (laughs) Please think. And acknowledge that when you get outside the core, what we call consensual orthodoxy, what's expressed in the creed, what all Christians at all times have always believed, when you get outside of it, it's hard to figure it out. So work at it. But don't break fellowship over it. Don't judge somebody who has a different view. Sit down find out why they believe the way that they believe. Well, that's a a crummy way to end a sermon on shame. But um, (laughs) I ran out of time. So... um, there's been a lot of interest in this, in this series, so I'm going to extend it. Um, and I wanted to tell you, next week, uh, the, the sermon theme will be healing sexual shame. And I wanted to give you a heads up on that, uh, knowing that some of us have painful wounds in this area. I always want all souls to be safe for you. So if sexual shame is part of your story, you, you may want to put in place some extra support for yourself uh, the week following uh, that sermon. Let's pray.